Today's episode is sponsored by Inward Bound Mindfulness Education. Wondering what your teen is going to do this summer? Wish they had more, more focus, more compassion, more patience, more concentration? Inward Bound Mindfulness Education offers innovative formats and teaching frameworks to teach teens and young adults mindfulness practices. Practices which build deep listening skills, self-awareness, and communication. And this summer, they're offering multiple retreat options, both in-person and online. In-person retreats are being planned safely according to CDC guidelines, such as ensuring each participant has their own room. Additionally, if in-person retreats need to be canceled for safety, then registrations will be refunded and online retreats will occur during that time frame. Either way, in-person or online, your child can have a powerful experience of learning mindfulness practices with the help of incredible staff and supportive peers. Visit ibme.com for details, dates, and registration. That's ibme.com. Today's show is brought to you by Omeo. Omeo is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America easy. Just enter your travel details and Omeo will give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey, making it incredibly easy to compare options and book your vacation and letting Omeo save you time and money. I know I'm looking forward to using it to compare different ways of reaching the same destination on my next vacation. Are you ready to get out and travel? Omeo wants to help by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head over to omeo.com, O-M-I-O.com, and use the code LISTENER5, all in caps in the number 5, when you check out. The code's valid until June 30th for new users on all modes of transport at Omeo, where you can plan, book, and love your journey. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler, stress relief coach and host of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. And quick reminder to pop over to mightyparenting.com to get your free email series on how to talk to your teen. Okay, mighty parents, what do you do when the teacher tells you your child is acting out or they're exhibiting other behavior issues? Or maybe it's not at school, maybe it's at home. Maybe your teen is melting down or lighting things up or seems to just be hiding and avoiding everything. What do you do when just these kind of behavior issues rear their heads? Well, a lot of times we tend to go into discipline mode, but today's guest has another path we can take, one without the power struggle. Her name is Lauren Spiegelmeyer, and Lauren builds a brain and research-based child-driven trainings and courses for teachers that keep the whole child in mind. And today, she is showing us how we can help our kids feel better and behave better, and she's going to show us how to help ourselves along the way. Lauren, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank you for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Okay, Lauren, people come to you about behavior problems in their children or teachers for students in their classroom. And when they do, you teach them about emotional control. So what is the connection between behavior issues and emotional control? So essentially, so many times I will have educators and, and parents both share that 
there are behaviors happening for no reason. They just come out of nowhere. And the one thing we need to learn and know and understand about behavior is always communicating something. And it's typically communicating some type of need. And what I will do to start is, is when I'm trying to figure out why a behavior is occurring, I will categorize it into the one of five needs areas. And I'm happy to go into more detail about those five need areas. But I know when a behavior is happening, that is because the child is not able to regulate their emotional state because they're likely not aware of it or just not in complete control of it. And, and there's an easy way to teach adults how to respond to that and kids have to start to recognize their states so they can work on changing them and then behaviors stop occurring as frequently anyhow. Which sounds really appealing as a, whether I'm a parent or a teacher or both. <laughs> to me, that just sounds so much better than trying to have a conversation with their kid about why are you acting out and what's happening? But instead for maybe you to give us some of the clues that we can look for and some of the suggestions that we can take. And I guess I'm saying take right to our, our kid, but is that even what we would do? Would we go talk to them about this idea of emotional control? Yeah. I mean, I think starting a conversation about emotional control and not just from the, the standpoint of like the child needs to get control, but we as adults are still to some extent working on that, especially now when we're in an overly stressed out state, we're not as able to keep control of our emotional states. So sharing that we are working on this as well, and we're all a work in progress and having an open conversation, especially with older kids who can have that dialogue. I think so many times we go into conversations with authority and wanting a change from the child's perspective, but simple, small little shifts on our end and showing them that we are working at it too, can make it easier and give them more motivation to adopt these, these concepts as well. But I think, yeah, opening up the conversation is a great first step. And we're talking about emotional control. And I started out with these kind of extreme comments, melting down, blowing up. But I think isn't emotional control about so much more than just, say, avoiding those extremes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we want to recognize basically a continuum of states. Like you can be low energy and need to get emotional control to bring your energy back up. And maybe that applies more so to us as adults as we're tired and we need more energy to do our work. But then you go into this, this like optimal state. So like, okay, this is my most productive state or this is my most calm state or it's my most filtered state. And then you have this other, the, the next state where it's like, you're getting agitated or irritated or frustrated, but you haven't completely lost control. And then your final state is like, okay, I, I'm, I'm out of control or I'm responding in a way that is very reactive. And we all kind of go through that continuum any point throughout the day. And it's, it's fine. It's, it's normal. It's okay to do that. It's just recognizing where you are so that you can make a shift to get back to your optimal zone. Talk to me about this optimal zone. What is that? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Yeah. So, and I'll give you an example of two ways I help kids to categorize one for, for younger kids and one for older kids. So for younger kids, if I really want to break it down in really, really simple terms, I'll do a color coded system. So you'll have blue, then green, then yellow, then red. Blue represents tired and low energy. Green, obviously that optimal zone, optimal energy. Yellow is that really short period of time where you're getting frustrated or you're getting worried or maybe a little bit fearful. And then red's that complete loss of control. So in that blue zone, 
for, for young kids, you'll see kids and adults alike can like they're calm, they can focus, they can um, like their body feels kind of light or at least not tense or not rigid. For, for teens, I might reference that in more of this hand signal. So it's a hand signal that comes out of Dan Siegel's work, but Georgetown University took it and really broke it down to tying it to the brain. And it's helpful for teens to understand this as well because it helps them to to relate it to that continuum. So you have you basically tuck your thumb across your hand like you're making a, a sign language B. So tuck your thumb across your, the palm of your hand and you wrap your fingers around your thumb. And the thumb represents what we would call the downstairs brain. And again, for young kids, you might call that like a barking dog. It's kind of reactive. The four fingers on top of the thumb that are wrapped around the thumb, they represent the thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex. For, for teens, we would call that your upstairs brain. So essentially what's happening here on this, this color-coded continuum is if your, your, your thumb, your, your downstairs brain, your barking dog, if it's in the blue zone, it's like not active. It's sleeping. It's not really aware of what's going on. It's groggy. If it's in its optimal zone, it's just kind of sitting there. It's quiet. It's not barking. It's happy. Maybe it's just been fed or it's just had a bone or something like that that keeps it calm. And then uh, when it goes into the yellow zone, the dog starts to bark a little bit, but it's not wildly out of control. And then the red zone, the dog is wildly out of control and barking. And what that means is when that downstairs brain or that dog is barking, it means we are emotionally elevated for, for young kids, for older kids, for adults. We reach this, reach this point of emotional elevation where it makes our upstairs brain or our prefrontal cortex, our wise owl, we call it fly away, meaning we can't access it. You can't access logic and reason and communication when you are in an emotionally elevated state which is why kids are very reactive and they talk back and they say things we don't like. It's not necessarily a filtered conscious choice. It's very impulsive. And that's because of the, the way the, the process is happening in the brain. All right. So this is all brain science. This isn't about attitude or willpower or, and I'm thinking about, you know, I'm talking about our kids, but also you said us too. I mean, this is physiological. Mm -hmm. So when we lose it, this is also not about whether we're a good person or a bad person or a good parent, or we're just physiologically at the mercy of what's happening inside of our brain. A hundred percent. And this, and that goes back to like, that's human biology. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, hunter gatherers, we had to have that downstairs brain, that barking dog, because we, we needed to be alerted. We needed to be in a stressed out state or in a reactive state to run away from danger in our environment. So it could be other tribes that are threats to us. It could be animals that are threats to us. So we needed that to be activated because it, it put us in that fight, flight, freeze, fawn response system that made us do something to save our, ourselves, essentially saving humanity. So that, that worked in our favor hundreds of years ago. The problem today is that little micro things are making that dog bark or making that downstairs brain become activated. And then it makes the wise owl or the upstairs brain um, either turn off or fly away. And when you're in that constant state of reactivity, it becomes a stable state for you, whether you're a child or an adult, but even more so for children, because 
their brains are still rapidly developing. I mean, a teen, even a late teen, their their thinking brain, the brain they like, their wise owl, their upstairs brain, what they need to have developed in order to keep the best emotional control, doesn't usually develop until like twenties, mid twenties, sometimes not even till thirty, depending on the the development of the child. So they're at an unfair advantage, raw, somewhat of an unfair advantage, considering all the stimulation and stressors we have today. Okay, I want to rewind that and dig in just a little bit more. In the midst of that, you tossed out this casual comment about how our reactivity state can kind of become our normal state. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, of course. So to kind of go back to that that color-coded chart, because it's the easiest way to visually understand this, is... When you're in that optimal zone, when you're in that green zone, when your dog is not barking, your downstairs brain is is kind of resting and turned off. Um, that's where we want to be. That's where your body is calm, your heart rate's calm, your stress is somewhat low or at least manageable. When you go into that yellow or that red zone, then your heart rate becomes elevated. Then you become more reactive. And what happens is it's, it works like a muscle. So when you go to the gym and you want to get stronger and you lift weights and you spend time exercising and you get, you get stronger and your body grows, these zones are the same way. So if you spend a lot of time in that green zone, the green zone starts to expand out. And that means that your tolerance of stress or stressors is expanded and you can handle more. But if you keep going into the yellow or the red zone, those zones expand out. And when they expand out, they take up space of the green zone. So your green zone shrinks, meaning it's much easier for you to jump into a reactive state because it's been practiced more. You've spent more time in it. And is there kind of this total space, the way I'm visualizing this in my mind is there's sort of this top to bottom, there's a total amount of space. And let's say that when we start out there, I don't think this is the way it is, but just for the sake of argument, we're going to say, let's say there's equal amounts for each of the four, the blue, the green, the yellow, and the red. And what I hear you tell me is so over time, if I spend a lot of time in the green zone and I, and I work this muscle and we'll talk about how to work that quote unquote muscle, but as that widens, it actually shrinks the yellow yes. and the red, right? So I Correct. am calmer, I am less reactive. And let's say, you know, my husband, who we've talked about before, and listeners who've been around a while know he's on the autism spectrum. So this this brain wiring makes it different for him in terms of what things stress him out. So his yellow and red mm-hmm. zones. He has the same amount of room that I have, but his yellow and red zones are bigger. So when something happens, it can be in my green zone, but it's in his yellow or red because his green zone is much narrower than mine. Does, is that right? <laughs> Getting this? I say, yep. You, you are exactly right. So I think that means I explained it semi-well that you're able to reiterate it back and exactly uh, how I would, how I meant to explain it. So, yep. The zones are essentially, like you said, stacked up upon each other and you have the same amount of space for each. We kind of are, maybe because they sort of born that way with, with equal spacing, maybe not quite because of some genetics, but, um, as we go through life and we develop depending on what we're exposed to and what we're around, those 
zones either shrink or grow. And if one is growing, then another one is shrinking. Think of like yin and yang, it's balance. Like when one reaction happens, opposite reaction happens in, in another direction. Okay. So if I have a teenager, this is not mm-hmm. a baby. This is this is a teenager. And and no, they're not 40 or 50 or 80 years old. And they've had 13, 15, 17, 18, 19 years mm-hmm. to shrink and expand zones. So if I am living with a teenager who is very reactive, again, this isn't about willpower or their intention about behaving a certain way. This is just physiologically when something happens that doesn't bother anybody else in the household, it can hit their brain in a way that they're just in red zone. The same way that like my little kid running in front of a car would shoot my brain into the red zone. Mm -hmm. This is all you know, instant reaction. I'm not thinking. I'm I'm just reaching out, grabbing that kid and yanking him back. And the same thing happens to them, even though whatever happened doesn't feel like now. Now we're not talking about a kid with in front of a car, right? We're just talking about some somebody makes a comment at the dinner table that everyone else in the family could be like, oh, okay, yeah, I you know, I get that, or maybe that was a little rude, but for them, it could be a red zone moment, right? Exactly. That you, you are exactly right. And, and there are things me as an, as an adult who is even well-versed in all of this and well-practiced in all of this, there are still things. And I, I know for the most part, what those things are, but there are still things that will immediately send me into my red zone and that's okay. That's normal. I just need to know what to do to get back to my green zone. And the sooner I apply the strategy that gets me back to my green zone, that means I don't spend a lot of time in my red zone and my green zone is, is, expanding out and growing. I can tolerate more. Mm -hmm. I I think where I'm at is just in this place of accepting that the other people living in my household with me, both my girls, my husband, we're all going to kind of have different zones. So number one is stop judging what people's initial reaction to something is, because that's kind of that zone response and give them a minute to to handle that once they even have the tools. Like right now, your child doesn't have the tools. You probably don't have the tools. Most people don't. So number one is I I just feel like I needed to sit in that place for a minute of going, okay, stop judging that because as much as we love to say we don't and as much as I talk about it on the show and I do it really great in certain areas, there are some things that it's just like in my head, really, really, you're getting upset about this? (laughs) Like, and oh, that's, so that's the other question, Lauren. All right. So I say something that to me is a, like a blue zone or a green zone, kind of a comment. Let's, let's use my husband for an example. Cause I already said that, you know, he has a wide yellow zone, right? Mm -hmm. So if I say something that hits his yellow zone or red zone, his reaction to that, his, yeah, his reaction to that could then push me out of my green zone. Right. And that's how we escalate things. Absolutely. Mm. And with teenagers, we, we all have the things that our teens do that make us crazy anyway, sometimes. I mean, you know, they're human, we're human. So absolutely. Okay. All right. So I think I understand how these zones work and now I accept that and I go, Oh, wow. 
if we all just had a wider green zone. So how do we get like this wonderful balanced place to be not, not too, too low, too slow. Well, and that, I guess back up before we go to the balance, my understanding of this is we're talking about red zone, yellow zone. And so we're talking about fight or flight and those, those anger, those outward pushing, those meltdown, very intense responses, but isn't freeze just the extreme end of the blue zone, the same thing, except shutting down instead of lighting up. Yeah. So, so I see that a lot in schools and people come to me with concerns about the kids in the yellow, the red zone that are very reactive and they are acting out and they're explosive. And I, I'm, I'm concerned about them. We need to help them, but I'm also just as, if not more concerned about the child that is in the corner, isolating and shutting down and going internal and not being socially interactive with their peers. Like that, that is alarming to me too. That is still a behavior on the opposite end of the spectrum that is concerning to me that we need to address in a, a little bit of a different way. Uh, regarding getting back to green, but still a way to help us uh, be aware of our state and get back to the the right spot to function properly. And if you have more than one child and you have a child who tends to respond in that yellow red zone, if you have another one who's responding in the blue, it's very easy to, to set that aside, to ignore that, or to even feel the relief of it, to not have a kid who's in your face. And yet their response is just as concerning from a mental wellness standpoint as the ones who are reactive. So, all right. So now we know blue, low, low end, that's the freeze. We hear fight, flight, or freeze. That's our freeze side. Mm -hmm. And we have fight and flight. So green is what we want to expand in both directions. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? Like, how do we make green everything? (laughs) I just want green from top to bottom. (laughs) And I, I talked to a lot of people about like things that we can do to get to green can be both reactive and they can be preventative. So, you know, you're going to need to put some things in place initially for dealing with the reactive responses to get them back to neutral or back to green. And then we also want to do some things daily uh, to help us to stay in green. So if we go back to that kind of that barking dog, that wise owl, that upstairs brain, that downstairs brain essentially what we want here is we want things that will calm the barking dog that will hit that downstairs brain. But we also want to work on things for the upstairs brain and and the wise owl, the thinking brain that really grow and expand the thinking brain. Because if we expand our thinking brain, we can essentially think more. We can think more rationally, more logically. We can stay in those spaces longer. So we can kind of talk about these things from, from those two ends. And so things that would calm the barking dog, things that would help us uh, get back to the green zone from that yellow or red would maybe be, it could be breathing, uh, certain types of like touch, whether they're maybe um, therapeutic touch or even like there are acupressure points on your body and kids can access those acupressure points themselves. Like there's one right between your eyebrows. So if you either put your finger there and you, you rub in a circular direction, doesn't matter which direction, just circular, or you tap it, it automatically reduces some stress and anxiety for you because it's an acupressure point. So touch, movement, breathing. So like if they can get like a walk or some exercise, um, even if like they get a drink of water or a crunchy, chewy snack, those are all things that would help them to get back to the 
green zone and help to calm that barking dog. Okay. You caught my attention when you said a crunchy snack because for me, as someone who has had to work on being a stress eater, as you know, I, the more tools I get, and I know we're going to talk about preventative and the more preventative things that I do, the less I have that. However, that's what I've noticed is it's, it's crunch or, mm-hmm. or when I've done different kinds of shifts in my diet, the thing that I tend to miss is the really crunchy food, the, the potato chips and the crispy crackers. Yep. What does crunch have to do with anything? Yeah, it's, it's de-stressing. So it activates these, these muscles in the jaw that really help to bring us back to neutral. And and we want to be careful there, especially with, with kids and teens and, and using food as a way of calming and coping, but there are some healthy alternatives for that. It doesn't always need to be like food that you swallow. I mean, it could be something as simple as gum or like they, they even make these and they're not, especially right now with all the concerns in the world about germs, but like chewy, um, I'm not sure what they call them, but they're like things that that people can chew on that are de-stressing. They're like, um, physical things that you can buy uh, like chewy tubes or de-escalating chews or yeah. And and I know they're, they're more common for children, but they do have some for teens and some for adults. Some of them are even like a necklace for, I think of it in, in a very childlike way. It's like, it's almost like a teether kind of, but it, it's created and it looks like, and it's modified for teens, um, and adults to use just to, to deescalate. Okay. That's just calm down. kind of fascinating to my nerdy brain, but, um, <laughs> now you also, you mentioned touch and you mentioned therapeutic touch. You mentioned the spot between the eyebrows. What about things like five, four, three, two, one, or just touching something and focusing on, you know, really in focusing on the, the texture, the temperature, things like that. What about an exercise like that? Yeah, I think definitely, especially if they're in the yellow zone, because in the yellow zone, they still have some control over their thinking brain. So like something like that, where it's like a task they, they could do to ground absolutely would work. Sometimes depending on the child, if they're already in that red zone and they're like in this extremely escalated point of of emotional energy, they might need something like more sensory oriented or physical. So that's where like the breathing, where they can feel the breath, the, the movement or exercise where they can like get their body physically moving or that like liquid or that snack has that physical sensation. But definitely if they're, if they're like in the yellow zone and they haven't quite hit the red zone, you can catch them there or they can catch themselves there. Then that five, four, three, two, one. Yeah, absolutely. Would bring them back down essentially to, to ground zero. And I'll put in the show notes, so that uh, mighty parents, you can look there for five, four, three, two, one, because we've covered it in other episodes. So I'll just add a link there to what that exercise is. All right. So these are in the moment. So this is yep. when we, we have a conversation with our teen about emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. We can talk to them about, you know, those times where you're in the yellow or the red zone and you just, you, you can't even think, or you can't think very well, you can't function here are some things you can try. I'm also going to be working on this because I want to expand my green zone. And that's a thing too, as a parent, the wider our green zone, the better off our kids are going to be. Because one, you told me that a human, one human's response to another can escalate them. So if our child does something and we can just stay calm and chill 
and be using our thinking brain, our upstairs brain, and just be there for them, we aren't going to make their situation worse. Also, it's it's teaching and it's showing them how to do this and, and we'll be happier, <laughs> we'll just be happier people. So so we want to expand right. our green zone so we can talk to them too. Hey, you know, you're doing this, I'm doing this. It helps each other. It helps us individually. Like it's a great thing. I hope that you will come along with me on this because as we've talked about here before, we can't make our kids do this. Right. So you also talked about preventative. These are like things in the moment. Mm-hmm. What What's the mm-hmm. preventative idea here? So the preventative would be the things that work on strengthening that wise owl owl or that upstairs brain. And these are things that can help us just stay in logic longer. So um, these would be things like mindfulness activities, minutes of meditation, yoga, stretching. Think, think things that slow us down, things that are slow moving, that make us pay attention to what's going on, slow our brain down. Um, and, and I know mindfulness and meditation are, are very hot topics right now. And sometimes kids can be demotivated by them or hearing them, or they've been exposed to them maybe in certain facets or in schools where it wasn't highly engaging. But mindfulness and meditation have so many layers and levels to them. So for me, when I first started meditating, I was like, I, I'm not enjoying this. I don't like this. And I stopped. But then I learned from further research that there are many different types of meditation. And once I found the right type of meditation for myself, I'm like, oh, I can do this for 10, 15, 20 minutes and and not even realize how fast the time has gone because this style of meditation feels good and it feels right to me. So I would say maybe with them explore what are some options for trying to integrate meditation? What are some different mindfulness practices that feel good and right to us that motivate us. And the big thing with these is because they're preventative measures, they're things that we want to put in our, our daily lives if possible, even if it's just like a minute a day or two minutes a day or three minutes a day, but something that we try to integrate into our everyday life, things that we practice constantly that will help get us back to uh, zero. And, and one of the ones that I do every day, that I, I know has made a significant difference for me. is just a gratitude practice. Every morning, my phone tells me at 6 a.m., tell me the five things you're grateful for. And I will pause for 30 seconds and I will come up with five different things from yesterday that I am grateful for. And that already makes sure that when I'm awake, I'm set in the green zone to start my day. I love that, that you have them on the phone. I'm going to try that one. I haven't actually done that. <laughs> and when my girls were younger, busy mom, and I lived in the Metro Detroit area. So I spent a lot more time in the car than I do out in the small town we're in now. And I did this little combination of gratitude and mindfulness in that, like I would stop at a traffic light and I would just look around at something in nature. Oftentimes it was a tree and I happen to love trees, but I just look at the tree and I'd be like, I am so grateful for this tree. And then I would just see like how many different things about it I could appreciate or show gratitude for, or even sometimes it would bring up a memory. Like I'm so grateful for all the trees I got to climb or that my daughter got to climb. And I look at all the colors of green. That's just a mindfulness, right? Just noticing that. But like you said, I, I, you'd use the term minutes of meditation and this is the same kind of thing. It's, it's not a huge time, but how many times do I stop at a traffic light when I'm on a half an hour or an hour long trip? 
And so it is just these a minute here and a minute there and building up. And it sounds like what you're telling us is that we don't have to do a 30 minute, 60 minute practice of any kind, much less a silent one style of meditation, just sitting in in a lotus position and clearing our minds. It sounds like every minute that we spend in any of these practices helps us and they just kind of build on each other. Is that right? Right. And I think that's adopting that, that like micro practice is the best way for sustainability. When you like think about if you're, if you're going to the gym, if you have not, if you do not have a workout routine or, or plan in place and you try and go to the gym for 30 to 60 minutes, let's say 60 minutes every day or multiple days a week, it it's probably not going to go well. Cause that's too big of a jump from where you're at to where you want to go. That might be a good goal to get to in six months, but right now we're just going to go to the gym for five minutes, or we're just going to work out for five minutes, three times a week or five times a week. And then we're going to add two minutes and we'll get up to seven and then we'll add three minutes and we'll get up to 10 and you work your way up to 30, 40, 60 minutes. But the, the best way for sustainability is to break it down and make it micro practices and even try and pair it with another activity um, that you already do daily, like teeth brushing or making breakfast. Or if you're in a commute, like maybe before you get out of your car, you do a minute or two of, of silence or meditation. And I mean, as little as two minutes a day, research has shown to, to make improvements to the, the brain plasticity and, and new neural development. So that, I mean, two minutes is, is not a significant amount of minutes in all the minutes we have in a day. Well, and I like the idea of the pairing and as you said, you know, we can build on it. And also sometimes life happens and we may have a good practice and then something changes. I had yep. this great morning routine for myself, which included some, it just a very short, but a little yoga routine. Like you said, that slow movement, that stretching, I have a, a style of meditation that I love and now lead. I, so I would do a yoga nidra every morning. And then we adopted an old dog who has to be walked around the block every morning. And I really, it threw my whole day off. And one of the reasons is that I lost those practices because I was the guy who had to take him out in the morning and still am. So I finally realized that I could just do sort of this kind of my own version of a walking meditation, mindfulness, gratitude combo for the few minutes that it takes me to walk the dog around the block. And once I got that back, Again, it changed everything, but it was because I, I went, okay, so I don't have this block of time anymore. I don't have 30 minutes in the morning to do that because I'm spending somewhere between 10 and 20 walking this dog. Instead of trying to carve out more time, I did what you suggested, which is combining, like brushing teeth. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm walking the dog anyway, so I can do this now. I, I like that. And one other question I have for you, Lauren, mm-hmm. is... All right, so I'm a parent, I'm listening to you, I think this is great, and the school is on my back. How do I talk to the school, work with my child's teacher, especially, you know, they're in middle school, they're in high school, we're we're not talking about little kids here so much, so they have multiple teachers, different classes, how do I talk to them and, or do I need to, is this something I just work on with my child at home? Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of different approaches that you can take. One, if you just work on it at home, that's better than not doing anything. That's going to make improvements, little improvements, but better if we can have consistency across 
different environments and settings. So ideally we all want to meet, chat, discuss a plan of action that, that will give us the quickest results. And that would include the school and the teacher. So what I would do is if, if I were going to implement something like this and, and I, I recognize that like colors are great for, for younger kids, for, for older kids, the colors may help, but, but you could even just show them four different zones, like a, a, a chart with four categories and explain what the categories mean. They don't necessarily need the colors and they might even be able to like, sometimes what I would do to get motivation from, from teens is if they have like a favorite TV show or they have favorite book series or something, I would tie characters to each different zone and, and explain how like these certain characters represent the four different zones. But what I do and what I have done is I just have a conversation with the school. So I, a, a quick meeting, it doesn't need to be that long, uh, 20, 30 minutes to explain what it is that we are doing at home and how that can be working with a teacher collaboratively to see how that can be integrated into the school setting. And it doesn't even need to be something that the teacher takes on and does. It doesn't need to be an extra, extra responsibility for the teacher. For some kids, even for teens, if I have a visual to, re to remind the child of those zones, because that's the first step, they have to learn to recognize their emotional state before they can change it. Once they recognize it, that's when we start building up those toolbox of strategies to use. And we use them reactively or we work on them preventatively or both. That's a secondary step. So what I might do is just have the teacher, if he or she is open is put a visual reminder. So like if there's a, a again, a, a chart of the four different zones, maybe it's just putting a visual chart in folders on the wall somewhere where only my, like the teacher and the, and the child know what that really means. And it's, it's not referenced during class. It's not taught because the child already knows what it means from, at, from being at home, but it's somewhere in their uh, visual sense where they are, are reminded of it. Cause it, cause we need reminders of it. Like our brain is exposed to so much every day, all this stimulation. So we need a visual reminder to recognize our states, to pay attention to our states. And sometimes we're moving so fast, especially in education from class to class to class, we forget to check, check in with our bodies and see where our states are at. So if we can just even add something so simple as a visual reminder somewhere in the classroom or within the child's stuff, or have maybe a cue or a sign for them to check in with their emotional self and see how they're doing. It can be a very subtle little thing that's not an extra teaching component for the for the teacher. I love that. And even if something isn't necessarily integrated into the classroom, I think just having that conversation with the teacher to let them know you heard them, yep. you understood them, and you and your child are working on this and just encourage them to have some patience because it's going to take time that this, again, having that conversation saying, this is not about willpower. This is not about them just changing their mind. This is about them learning skills. Right. And, and like any new concept, especially when we're talking about changing essentially the, the brain chemistry, we're talking about changing the way the brain is wired it had to wire in this direction first. So there, there are pieces of, of the child's life and evidence and data that has shaped them into reacting and responding this way. And we are trying, we are now trying to shape it in the opposite direction and that doesn't happen overnight. So the educators needing to have grace, families having grace, kids having grace, people having grace for the child as we all work toward improvement. And that, that's again, not going to happen overnight. Okay. And I know this isn't exactly what we're talking about, but I just want to make sure that any of my parents who are listening know you actually create programs for schools. So mm -hmm. if, 
if we talk to a teacher or someone else at the school and they have any interest, you have courses and you have programs that you can work with in person or virtually with school systems to help them integrate these ideas for all their students. Yeah. So we, we work with both schools and we do some private coaching with families as well. So to, to, to really integrate these practices and to teach them and to guide them when you have questions, because of course, when you're trying to implement something like this, you're, you're always going to have questions about, oh, did, was that right or wrong? Or does this count? Or does that count? Or how do I make this modification? So yeah, coaching, uh, and there are online courses for parents and educators. And then we work with schools to train them as well. If, if they are finding that they have a need for that. Okay. And where can we find you online, Lauren? The best place is probably on our website, which is uh, thebehaviorhub.com. That's where you can find those three avenues of support. But there's also, there are free resources on our uh, social media channels as well. Facebook is probably the best way to find us. Our uh, Raising and Educating Children Facebook page has lots of, of great resources that all talk about these things. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. I have wanted to talk about emotional regulation for quite a while, and I appreciate you being here with us and explaining this so well and so clearly to help us see how we can impact our our kids and our families. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for inviting me on to this digital stage to be able to share this information. It's, It's been a blast. And Mighty Parents, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I know I often ask you to share an episode, but this really is near and dear to my heart because I've seen the impact and the changes that it can make in people's lives. So please share this episode. If you can share it with five other parents, that would be amazing. If you can share it with one, I so appreciate it. But share this episode, let people know about this information because it takes a lot of the strain out of parent-child relationships. And also pop over to ibme.com. The programs, the retreats that they have also help with emotional regulation. So that is a great tool to use. Remember, if you're here, if you're listening, you are a mighty parent. You got this. And I will see you next week.